This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. Hey, everybody, guess what? The creative writing community is now open for membership. I'm so excited about this community because it is going to be dedicated to writers writing their book, publishing their book, and launching their book, all while having a good time and growing in their craft. Writing is typically an all alone art, but you don't have to be a lone wolf and do everything yourself. In fact, I highly recommend that you don't just for your own sanity. In the creative writing community, we're going to have live writing sprints, author hangouts, expert Q and A's. We're gonna learn all about the things that it takes to be an author these days, and generally support each other in the craft. It will be a place where you can share your knowledge and learn from others and find collaboration and accountability with people who are serious about growing as writers. We're gonna support each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, and be generally as committed to seeing each other succeed as we are to our own success. If you're interested in being part of such a group, head on over to catcaldwell.com and just click the pink button right at the header. My guest today is Katherine Hamilton. She has a novel out called Victoria's War, which talks about the Polish women who were kidnapped into Nazi slave labor camps during World War II. Catherine is of Polish descent, and we talk about that as well as how she did her research for this book, her journey of writing this book, and how freelance writing has been for her over the years. She has quite a bit of different writing going on in her life, which you'll find out all about during the interview. You can find Catherine at katherineahamilton.com and the links will be in the show notes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Katherine Hamilton with me. We have sort of followed each other on Instagram on and off for couple of months now, I think. And so I had the privilege of watching her bring out her debut novel, and I'm so excited to be talking with her about it. Before we get into the interview, let me remind you that if you want to get in on the creative chat rooms, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. So head on over there, you support the show, and you get some little extras extra conversations with other creatives that you know and love. So Catherine, I'm excited to have you here to finally be talking, not texting each other. So how are you doing? I'm really well. Thank you, Kat. This is my very first podcast interview. So I went and purchased a really nice wireless headset. So I've got my headset on and I'm all ready for my first podcast with you and thank you so much for inviting me well thank you for coming on and and for us being your first podcast I think that the audience of pencils and lipstick just really enjoy hearing creatives and they're always excited for it to be the first podcast so yay we get you first before everyone else (laughs) so 
I gave them a little bit of a bio beforehand, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your writing and your creativity? Sure. Well, I'm sitting here in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon, not far from the the town that I was born, a tiny town called Sweet Home, Oregon. And I'm a native Oregonian, but of Polish descent. And I moved to Portland after I finished high school. I went to college here in at Lewis and Clark College. And I actually studied psychology. I got my master's degree in counseling psychology and was licensed as a therapist and had a private practice and also did some consulting at the VA hospital for about 12 years. And I I started writing articles in my field, and that was my first taste of publishing works that I had done, and I just loved it. I fell in love with having publications and worked with a psychologist, and we published articles in periodicals and journals, and then I joined a writing group and started writing fiction on it always written some poetry as a young person and just journaling. And when I started publishing in the field, I just thought, oh, maybe, maybe I like to write. Mm -hmm. And that's where it really started for me was, was publishing professionally in the field of psychology. And, and then I, I had a book project that I was working on and, and I started helping a physician's group with editing their newsletter. And mm. and then my husband and I decided, well, maybe we should try a shot. The kids were teenagers with this book idea I had. And and that was, there's often a first novel that, that does not get published. I've published short stories out of that first idea as a novel, but it was my second novel really that became my first novel, which is not something that's abnormal for writers you know there are a lot of things right. that you write that sit in a box so yes this is true I too have a first novel that is like novel zero it won't it won't get published <laughs> <laughs> that's what we should call it novel zero because mm-hmm. it's like your first novel is the one that you want everyone to mm-hmm. to read so do you think I think you're the second person who studied psychology that I've interviewed and mm-hmm. I looked back a bit as a writer and thought we should, as writers, probably study psychology because we're writing about characteristics of people and trying to get into their brains and trying to, you know, be very diverse in characters. You like, you don't want the same character over and over again. Mm-hmm. So how do you, do you think it helped you to be in the, in the psychology field or am I just going off the deep end? <laughs> I'm wishing I had studied psychology. No, I think that there's something to what we study or or who we are. Like you're a mom and you learn Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount from your relationship with your kids. And we all know psychology, you know, street psychology, right? But I Mm -hmm. think for me, what my education did was if I'm dealing with a character who has a trauma, let's say, and Mm -hmm. I have to be honest with myself and how is this person how is a person really going to deal with this how do people sometimes during trauma do something like what we would say dissociate or or they'll pretend like they're 
what's happening is not really happening. Yes, that's a defense that my characters can use because people do that. When you're in the midst of shock, let's say, you might not remember exactly what happened. Can my character use that in part of her personality? And and the answer is yes. So I think it does give a layering for me that I can make it real. And and I, I think that has helped. Yeah, I think it helps make people very human instead of like having your good character, you know, because we always have the hero and the villain. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not always as dynamic or cartoonish like Marvel, you know, where it's obvious, but like the hero can't be super good. Otherwise they get a little boring, you know? And so you kind of have to like really delve in. At least I really like novels like that where it's like, they're true to actual humans. Like they mess up (laughs) because if I have a, a a hero in a novel, I mean, that's just too good. I feel like, Oh, they're too good for me. I can't, I can't live up to this person. (laughs) Nobody's this nice. You know, you know, and you have to think about their, not just their strengths, but also their weaknesses where, where is their blind spot and what, where do they mess up regularly? And that's where, I don't know if you use any character sheets or character development outlines, but I always like to to know ahead of time where the blind spot is for this character. What do they mm-hmm. go through, and just absolutely not see until maybe the end, you know, near their their character climax, where they they finally realize something about themselves, or they finally overcome that that piece of themselves it's really been keeping them from reaching their goal now my villains in in my novels can be more stereotypic I don't feel like I have to have a psychologically accurate villain every time you want mm-hmm. to have shades of gray but I have a character in in my first novel that it's more, you know, she's just the bad guy and she's she's the, the villainous and she doesn't change much and we all hate her. And, <laughs> you know, and that's okay. Yes, <laughs> because, that's okay. Because, Kat, the thing is, there are some people who just don't change and don't grow and don't learn and are just, you know, we don't like them. Exactly, exactly. And unless it's going to be a 900-page novel... You really can't get into everybody's growth Mm-mm. point. We're we're really more concerned about the hero's growth point. You know, we're more concerned about what happens to them mm-hmm. more than the villain. <laughs> they can kind of fall off the page once we deal with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how was it to go into poetry? You mentioned that you, you wrote a little bit of poetry um, in school. Was that something that you found maybe more due to homework or was it something that you sort of delved into personally as you were growing up? I think the poetry is, is that aspect of, and I don't know if you've ever written a poem, have you? Oh, way long ago, but I I had, I didn't like it very much. Okay, (laughs) I wasn't very good at it. I don't think. Okay. The, The kind of poem that that I will write is more stream of consciousness. It's not, you know, like rhyming uh, poetry. And so for me, it was more part of like, if I would have an experience, let's say as a young person, and I remember one poem 
that I wrote either while or shortly after being in in the room for unemployment. I had somehow, mm-hmm. I can't even remember what early job it was. I was probably a, a mental health therapist or something and the company closed down. So it was just the such an, an intense experience for me to see all these people in this room filling out forms, people of every shape and size and color. So I think poetry comes out of, it's almost like a painting when you, to me, or even cooking. It's just like this organic sort of happening. A poem to me, it, it comes to you and it comes to you whole and entire. You don't have to plot it. You don't have to think about beginning, middle, and end. It's just there. And so that to me is, is a more, for me, a more primitive and more visceral aspect of my creativity. And I don't, I'm not writing poems right now, but when, mm-hmm. when something, some event happens, if there, let's say, is a death in the family, let's say, or there are certain things that happen that I will get a poem and then I just write these down. And that happened to me when the Pope John Paul, the Polish Pope, was very elderly and my husband and I took a pilgrimage to Rome and we got to actually meet the Pope and go to Mass with him and and be in his library with him. And I had been writing some things about Poland and I was able to share some of that with him. So when the Holy Father passed away, I was inundated with poetry. And so for about a month, I wrote poems and I wrote about Poland and I wrote about my experience meeting him and, and I published that. And that's also on my website. It's called nine days, which is the period of mourning for a Pope. And so, so that's kind of my poetry self. It, it, it happens usually at a very intense moment and I get this, the poems just take over and, and I just write them down and, and then, then it's done. Right. I, I like that. I think a lot of times we have intense moments in our life and we're not always sure how to process them, but it sounds like that would be a really nice way to process it and mm-hmm. let the emotions come out, whether or not they're ever shown to anyone, people can decide, but that seems mm-hmm. like a a much better way of dealing with the emotions. And I think what a lot of us do these days, and we just ignore them and mm-hmm. turn on Netflix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I even, really, I like that idea. Even for your, how old are your kids? 13, 10, and mm-hmm. seven. Yes. It's, it's like with children, if, if something has happened and they just have some, what, whether it's intense joy or they're really perplexed by something or even the COVID I just think it's a great exercise too. And it, it is more like journaling. My poetry is more like stream of consciousness. And, and, you know, if you let your 13 year old just sit down and, you know, write a piece about something, if, if they're inclined to, that's the sort of thing that, that I think modern poetry is, is just mm-hmm. writing about an experience. And it's so different 
from writing prose. And that's why I usually don't do them together. They're, they're just like almost different parts of the brain because a poem is not necessarily organized and it doesn't have the kind of structure that you really have to have, I feel, for a novel. And of course, literary fiction, you'll pick up some of the, the literary fiction that is fantastic and, and it is more poetic and doesn't have the structure that I prefer to have when I read uh, and when I write a novel. Right. Right. But I, I think if people want to try something new, a stream of consciousness poem mm-hmm. sounds like a, a nice place to start. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's always good for us to like expand our horizons of our creativity, but that sounds like a really nice way to yeah, deal with COVID or the things that have happened in 2020 and into 2021. It's like better to get it out in a stream of consciousness poem than to go to Facebook. <laughs> I usually tell people to go journal, but oh, that's a good, <laughs> either way, don't go to Facebook, get your stream of consciousness out first. It'll mm-hmm. help you organize your thoughts maybe. Mm-hmm. So you started out with writing poetry. Were you still working as a psychologist while you started really taking your writing seriously, besides the like publishing about psychology and things like that? I was still working and I'm trying to remember what my first, the other thing I did, Kat, was I, I, I started freelancing and okay, what's a freelance writer? Well, I, I would get an idea for an article, let's say, that I wanted to publish that might have something to do with a novel topic, or it could have been my collection of poems. And the reason I started writing, so you start seeing that that I throw a lot of plates up in the air. I might have a collection of poetry, then I'm working on a novel, and I'm also still working as a counselor writing articles in my field so and that's just how I live I write cooking articles as well so and, and why do I do all of these things well I get I have lots of ideas and and still I'm trying to tell myself Catherine, you don't have to do everything you think of so I have an idea right oh I should write a cooking article or oh I should write an article for the Polish journal about some World War II character. The reason mm. I go ahead and, and let myself do a variety of things, like write a poem and try and publish them. So I, I really try and publish the things that I write. And I don't journal right now because it's very hard to, to publish a journal unless you're going to write a memoir. And the reason yeah. <laughs> I, I do that is because I'm creating this platform. And I learned early on when I was first starting to write outside of my field and I was thinking about maybe quitting my day job was that as as a writer of fiction, nobody really cares about how many articles I published in psychology magazines. That doesn't count. That won't help. I mean, maybe a publisher will say, okay, well, she can write. But right. that doesn't help with fiction. And so I start creating a platform in which if people are going to Google me or they're going to go on my website, they're going to see 
Wow, she knows what she's talking about when she writes historical fiction during World War II, because look at these articles that she's published in various venues on the subject. Mm-hmm. And then, then they can also say, oh, but look at that. There's a cooking photograph. And I, I love to cook, and it is a hobby for me. And I love to cook every day, and I like to make it pretty. And that's part of the taking a photograph of your cooking. And then I thought, oh, I wonder if I could do more than just put it on Instagram. And that's when I started submitting my cooking articles. And so people can see something that entices them. And they go, oh, I love to cook too. And Catherine and I have this in common. So it's just Again, a poem is another way to invite people to look at something that they might like that is beyond the novel. So, right. I don't know if that answered your question about, yeah, yeah. I was still working and I was doing a lot of things, kind of preparing to move toward being an author and a writer of fiction. How do you do that and not just fall flat? So. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way to do it because sometimes we tend to write a book or make our jewelry or whatever it is and not create the platform until the project is finished. And so I think that was really smart of you to think of how to build a platform and build like your reputation on the fact that you know what you're talking about, like World War II. Like, especially for me, I love reading novels set in World War II. But I have read so many nonfiction and then fiction on the subject that I can tell when a writer doesn't really know what they're talking about. They just sort of put people into a setting that they think will sort of help the story along. And I can't stand it. (laughs) So I really dislike it when I'm like, that wouldn't happen at that time. Or they put on the ideas of feminism in 2020 into 19... 38 um, Uh Germany you know it's just like you can't that it's not the same thing people weren't the same they had different worries they had different Mm -hmm. opportunities or lack thereof so I really like how you thought that through and you're thinking no I need to show that I do know what I'm talking about and that I have done my research on it anyway I'm going to commend you Mm -hmm. for that I think that's really awesome so you your book, Victoria's War, is set in Poland, correct? It's set in Poland and Germany. And it actually is, it opens in Poland right before the invasion of Poland. And then the, my characters are, are taken to Germany. So most of the novel occurs actually in Germany. Okay. So what what connects you so much to your Polish heritage? Were your grandparents like first first-generation immigrants, or what is it that connects you to being Polish-American? My father was second-generation Polish. My grandparents then were first-generation. They came in like 1911 and 1907. And I always tell people that my, my Polish is terrible, Kat. I didn't speak Polish at home. It was not encouraged, and there were a lot of people who were, I don't know, didn't really want their people to be immigrants and speak their language back when Mm -hmm. I was growing up. 
and yeah. it's so different now. And so I didn't speak Polish when I was little, but I I kind of learned to speak enough Polish to get by when I traveled. But I would tell them, I mean, I'm half Polish, that but I would say, "Mój serce jest Polka." My heart is Polish. So mm-hmm. I have seven. There's seven kids in my family, and and two of us girls are are really more interested in the Polish cooking and just the Polish identity. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. Is it did I get a, a bigger dose of the DNA <laughs> from the <laughs> Polish side? I feel like I do, but that's that's not based on science. And yeah. it's just it's just based on uh, I loved my my Polish grandparents. I loved my French grandparents as well. But I just had this attraction to the Polish language, to the Polish food. And uh, I was a daddy's girl and he was, he was Polish and we would sing Christmas carols in Polish. And we did not go to Poland as a family. We didn't travel much. So I think it was just something that my father emphasized and, and I latched onto it. And I think that that parents can, like my mother was not that interested in her cultural background and my father was. Yeah, that definitely influences us. And I think as Americans, it's really interesting because we can have quite a few different areas to investigate, you know, sort of depending on how long our families have been here. And it is interesting to see like how much it affects one member of the family more than the others. But I mean, it's it's kind of cool to feel connected to the Pope, you know, Pope John Paul II, mm-hmm. just because like, oh, my grandparents are Polish. I'm Polish. I, I just love that, like that feeling of connection to something bigger almost. Yes. And he's Polish and therefore, you know, he's my brother in, you know, kind of a Polish sense. And the early in Poland, you know, before historic time and prehistoric Poland, before Poland was a nation, there were the native Poles. and. There were tribes, as there are, in, as there were in America, the the American Indians. There were the Polish. You can call them the natives. You know, the American mm-hmm. natives, the Polish natives, and those those native Polish natives. You can see if you go to Poland, you can see. I see people. Oh, there's my, that that looks exactly like my grandmother. That looks exactly like my father. And so you still see that, Pat. There still have cool. these, these ethnic characteristics that you can see. And, and so now I, I see people and I hear an accent and I know that that's a, a Slavic person, at least. It could be from Czech or Lithuania. But when my sister and I traveled to Poland together, it was so amazing because we, we drove on. We have cousins that live in the village that my family came from and my my paternal grandparents and they still all live in the same area where my grandfather was born and raised and it it was you know we drive up the road and here is the property where my grandfather's house and his well was still there the well that they used so many years ago and I kid you not I had and I get goosebumps even telling you it was like being home 
for the first time, but going home again. And, you know, I, my sister and I both just, uh, you know, tears of joy. And it was a really, really wonderful feeling, like going home, but seeing it for the first time. So, yeah, that is uh, really cool. Mm-hmm, yeah, so it was wonderful. And we got to meet all of our cousins who, who still live there. In fact, we talk on uh, Messenger through Facebook now and and yeah so so those are the sorts of things that make doing your research and and having a place you can go and and really tap into some of that that heart stuff that that makes writing so much fun right and and hopefully that's translated into my story so was it the trip to Poland that made you want to write a story specifically about Polish people in World War II? Or did you already have that idea and you sort of went there for some research? I actually went on research and the the person who inspired me to write this book was actually a cousin of mine that lived in Denver. And I did not know her growing up. In fact, my my family did not even know about her name, Catherine, also. Mm-hmm. And she was my story's inspiration. And she found us, you know, Poland was behind the Iron Curtain after the war. And they were occupied first by Nazi Germany. And then immediately after the war fell in under the hands of the Soviets. Right. And so, so we couldn't really communicate with with family in in Poland. There were there was no way to talk on the phone. The village that my grandfather was from did not even they didn't have phone. A lot of them didn't have electricity, and it wasn't until the 1990s, which is not that long ago, and the Iron Curtain fell that things started opening up, and that's why we had a relative in the United States who had been abducted by, and that's what my story is about, is about women who were Polish Catholic women who were kidnapped and taken as slave laborers and and forced labor to Germany to work in either small businesses, factories, or on farms. And so what happened in the 90s is that my, my cousin who lived in Colorado, was able to travel back to Poland for the first time. And it was by going back there and and talking to her sister, who she hadn't seen since she was kidnapped from the village. Yeah. So what was it? 55 years or more. And, And that she said, well, we have relatives in the Northwest. Well, then she pieced together and found my aunt and my father, and she sent us this tape recording about her experience. And it was that tape recording about being kidnapped from this village I mentioned that my sister and I went back to in Poland. And she was kidnapped from that village, taken to Germany, and survived slave labor in Germany. And that was the inspiration for my story. And I'd never heard of the slave labor that happened. And so I went to visit her first in Colorado. And this was, you know, my kids were in high school. I was still working and practicing in my field. So I have this story idea. Mm-hmm. And and that was when I was thinking, hmm, wonder if I could write this story. And she wanted me to write her story down. 
But I really had to do research on it. I couldn't write a book just about one person's experience. And right. that's when I went to Germany and I went to Poland and I interviewed primary sources. And, and that's when, Kat, I found out that 1.7 million Polish Catholics had been kidnapped and forced into slave labor wow. in Germany. And, and yeah, so the story, it just, it mushroomed and I, I did the research that I needed to do. And again, it was inspired by Catherine Grachek, who is, who has passed away now, but, but her, the story is so much bigger than, than her story. So it took on German characters. I, I met some wonderful German people as well. And, and so that was why I went to Poland was, was for research. And it's just been a real, very enriching, difficult, but yeah. enriching experience for all of us, really. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I tell my kids all the time that the history that they have the time to learn in school is such a tiny fraction of actual history you know we just don't have enough time in our school years to learn everything and it's you have to break it down into bite-sized pieces here's the bad guys here are the good guys and yet it it's so much more complicated than that there are so many more people affected by what happened in world war ii Um, i had no idea it was what you said 1.4 million that that's a lot of people you know, I it is, and that was just Polish people. There were also uh, Russians and Czechs, and there there were just a lot of people who, when when the nation was occupied by, and that's why I say occupied Nazi occupied Europe, because when you look at the map, except for England, that entire continent was occupied by the Nazis, right? not by Germans. And, you know, you have to be careful because, and that's, that's why I say I met some wonderful German people and they inspired me to have my real German characters who, who were not Nazis, but were in a nation that was basically occupied by a, a dictatorship. And, and it was all of Europe, like I say, I'm in France and, and all, every little country, uh, all the way to Italy. Right. right. There were so many people that were affected by by that occupation. And and so it was it was fun to learn because it definitely was not in the history books, the, especially the story about Eastern Europe, what really happened there once the war was over. And things were locked down and the Soviets took over their parts of Germany and Poland. You just really didn't get the stories. And the interesting thing for me was that when Victoria's War was just about to come out, there w- was a flood of books that were coming out finally about the the poles who wore they were forced to wear the letter p on their clothing and i had again never heard about this letter p and and so there now it's 
easy to document and you can Google search it. But when I first started doing my research, there was nothing. I mean, it was so hard. There were there were books, but I mean, I literally had to go to libraries and research military documents to to get the the volumes that I needed to read on the subject. But now it's out there. Wow, it's, it's on your Google search. That's good. And ten years ago, no, it wasn't. It was hard to find. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's that. It's it's strange for this new generation to think that not everything has always been at our fingertips. And there's probably still even more to unpack from World War II that we're not yet talking about, you know? And so Mm -hmm. hopefully they will continue to come out. But there has been kind of a a wave again of fiction set in World War II. What's your idea Mm -hmm. of why that is? It's it's just amazing, and, and that is so true, that people just don't seem to tire of World War II fiction. And I'm not sure there's something that maybe the music, that, that the old movies that might romanticize the idea of that, but it's, it is our la- the last World War that we went through, mm-hmm. and Military documents don't get released for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are so many new ideas. And every year, while I was researching and writing Victoria's War, every year, a, a small stack of World War II novels would come out. You know, the stories that, that we all think about and know and love. You know, I mean, I'm talking about Sarah's Key, the, the, the zookeeper's wife. The Spy Who Loved, and now more recently, All the Light We Cannot See. And every time I think, oh, they're going to write my story. How <laughs> did they write my story? And these were all new stories. And the thing is, when you have a war, there are as many stories as there are people affected by that. True. And I think I think that's why we we see the volumes of World War II novels and and people are still buying them and people are still loving them. And if you find a story that's new, and that's why I'd latched onto the story and everyone says, Catherine, you have you have to write this book. And so I did. And I say that 2020 was Victoria's Wars year. It came out in 2020 in June. And the audiobook actually is going to come out in 2021. And I'm super excited about that. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I just think that there are enough stories out there that there are books are still coming out. And Victoria's War is one of those stories that hadn't been told. Right. Until now. Right. Do you think that you'll write another novel set in World War II? I will. In fact, I'm working on my next book right now, and hopefully I'll be able to do some travel for research yeah. once things open up. <laughs> I feel you. But yeah, I'm working, I'm working on one. Oh, that, that's wonderful, because I, I do think you're right. There's something about that time that it feels like there's still something more to learn. Like, we haven't yet learned everything that we could about that time. And I like how you, you mentioned that not every German were 
Nazis, you know, and the German people, I have quite a few German friends and just the sort of processing that they had to go through, sort of realizing that they, you know, their country was responsible for, you know, atrocities and trying to sort out, you know, who in their family was responsible for that and whether it mattered or not to them in their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting thing. And I think that we can learn so much from fiction a lot of times because it makes it, it makes things easier to swallow. Like even atrocities are easier to deal with when they're in fiction. And it, it helps us learn without maybe the finger being pointed, you know, but if we do process it, I think that we can even put ourselves there and wonder like, what character would I be and how would I respond to that? You know, like, isn't it, it's all the light we cannot see. That's the one where the two sisters, right? That's one that made me think like, who would, who would I be? Would I, what Mm -hmm. is courage? You know, all these little questions that in America in the last few decades, we haven't really had to ask ourselves that, you know, what is courage? How does courage always, is it seen, you know, like, you can have quiet courage. Sarah's key too. It was one that affected me so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was one that I had like dreams about. I'll, I'll put links for people down below, but um, your book, Victoria's War, it, like you said, it doesn't just follow one character. Um, so one of the characters is, is based off of the, the Catherine that you talked about. And then did you mm-hmm. make up 20 year old Edda is like, is she sort of a combination of people that you met in Germany or is she completely made up? Edda Todd is a, is a fictionalized character and, and she was inspired by a particular woman that I interviewed, Barbara B. Noder, who is a German woman that actually lives uh, in here in Portland that I, I had the honor of interviewing that she was a a little girl growing up in Germany hmm. and so she had the experience and and I, I just never forget her saying we suffered too yeah and so I think and I'm really glad that you brought us back to the the people in Germany who suffered during the war it's kind of that identity that that the Germans to me they were their country their country, in in my opinion, was not responsible. There was a one very small political party who got so much power that they had no control. Mm-hmm. And and how can that happen? Well, it just does. Yeah. And you know, and so and it did happen. There was there was an event, and so they have the German people maybe have this guilt about what happened, and it it was a horrible time and a horrible, really one person based ideology that was then imposed an entire, not just one country, but an entire, you know, continent. Mm-hmm. That's why I say Europe was occupied by the Nazis and, and they were a minority. Were they forced to join parties? Yes, they were. They were forced to buy guns and you know, you, you can look around your own neighborhood and see, I mean, we're, we're, we are all complying with our 
with our government asking us to wear face masks to protect us from the COVID. And we're doing that because people tend to do what they're asked to do to help other people. But when they're forced by gun, at gunpoint, and this is, this is what happened uh, in, in Nazi Europe, is that there were guns out on the street mm-hmm. and people would obey. Right. And, and so as an author, I feel that I have the responsibility to do the healing culturally that needs to be done. And did I succeed at that? I don't know, but I certainly really tried to to make it clear that, for example, Etta, who is a deaf woman, who is an artist, and she's very unique and people love her. And she became an example of, of how the vulnerable in Germany were not able to to defend themselves mm-hmm. against what the Fuhrer forced upon them, either medically or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so so she became, and she's a, a completely fictional character that was so fun to write, Kat, because she was just this creative, she was, uh, she had a disability, but she was a courageous woman, and and she befriends this Polish woman, and she she doesn't believe in the slave labor. She wants to help, and so I was able to highlight what these German people did to help the Poles, and in that way, do the healing that I think still needs to be done after this this war so long ago. And I, and right. I hope I did that. Right. But yes, yes, there were bad guys. There were villains, mm-hmm. but so that was, that was Etta and, and everybody loves Etta. You know, so she's, she's a, a wonderful character and she was so fun to write. But I think she maybe embodies the idea that just one step against evil is good and you can take one step mm-hmm. and another step and another and help, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like the embodiment of hope a bit, probably in the midst of what mm-hmm. seems so dark. And you can either fall into hopelessness of, you know, I can't do anything that will change this, which I'm sure it looked like that sometimes, you know, all these different things happening, war on all sides, like you said, for enforcement of doing things and you can fall into the idea of no matter what I do, it won't make an impact or you can fall into if I, if I can just help somebody. And there's so many of those stories, like you've said from world war two of people just reaching out and helping and making an impact on one person or 400 people, you know, you just never, you never know where your impact will go. So yeah, I think there's so much more to learn from that time. And it's, it's good for us as society not to forget and not to, not to make World War II as simple, I think, as sometimes we like to pretend it is. It's, it really was a, a complicated time with lots and lots of stories, like you say. So I'm excited to hear about your next one, too. Um, but for right now, people, Victoria's War was published just, I guess, about eight months ago. Mm-hmm. And you went with a a smaller press. What was that experience like? Did you did you purposely seek out a smaller press for your story? 
I think initially what I, I went the the mainstream route. I did the, the query letters. I did I went I attended writers conferences and pitched my story to publishers and agents. And I actually had an agent for Victoria's War and I got so close with the big five and that at the end of the day, they uh, I did I didn't get past that that top board meeting. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so close, it was so close. And so my agent said, you know, just go ahead, keep keep going forward. And initially, you know, when you're when you're a new writer of fiction, it's daunting. And so initially, I I wanted to do the send out the query letters, get an agent go for the, the mainstream publishers and and that was a very good experience for mm-hmm. me and I learned a ton and my agent really helped me and she said just she said try the smaller presses and so I did and I used to tell people Kat that I could wallpaper a room with rejection letters. <laughs> it's just like I have a you know I've got to build a a barn for my rejection <laughs> letters. And and you think, oh, well, why would you keep doing that? And that was the point where my father said, I think you better go back to practicing <laughs> psychology. But I, every day I would get up in the morning and I would, I, my office is upstairs. I would climb up those stairs and I just never gave up. Yeah. And this was a story that was, I was so committed to that the story just it, it it had a mind of its own and it just would not let me stop and so i i researched the smaller presses and i got accepted from plainview press and it was probably the last okay i think it was i read an article about the top I mean, if you do a Google search on small presses, you can find wonderful articles about these small presses. So it's in that batch, this most recent last batch of small presses that I got my novel accepted and still took almost a year for the whole process to happen. Mm -hmm. So everything in the publishing and writing industry takes forever (laughs) and it just does. And so... You never, you know, it's not the time to rush when you're doing a finishing project. And even right now, while I've really been committed to spending my mornings working on my writing and my next novel, I just got the proof back to listen to my audio book. And so I, I couldn't do my writing this week. And now I'm talking to you this morning, which is wonderful. So you have to you have to kind of go with it. I have to go through and I have to listen to the entire audiobook right. and compare it with there's actually a computer that hears error. Oh, wow. And the computer yeah, huh? So you get a proof back that that shows the errors and I have to either accept or reject the computer found word change or it's kind of interesting huh. that in in the auditory language, I mean, I'm expecting it if if it's a, an uh or a the, you know, do do I make the voiceover person record a new version oh, okay. or, or a word change? 
And so really time consuming, but very fun because the audio book for Victoria's War will be out. And I actually have book fans who prefer to listen right. to their books. And I'm super excited because the, the voice over actress is a French lady who was raised in Germany, so she can handle some of the German that occurs in mm-hmm. the book. And her best friend is a direct a Polish director that lives in oh, Berlin. Wow. So she's just awesome, and her voice is amazing. And so, yeah, for those of, of you who like Audible or audiobooks at all, that should be coming out in the next couple months. Well, that sounds like it's so been a really great that. experience then. It has been awesome. I, I think that's a that's really amazing, and I, I don't think that there are so many options these days. Like you, like I think we always want to go with the big five, you know. But even still, it won't always get you to where you want to be. You know, who knows? Um, I guess we could always pretend to tra- time travel <laughs> and say what if. But I mean, it sounds like this press has really been supportive and and gotten your book to every place, even though it's, it feels slow. I think even the big five are, are pretty slow these days, unless you're, you know, a really big name and they need to get everything out at once. But I also think it's a good mm-hmm. reminder to anyone who indie publishes or self publishes to take your time because they take their time for a reason. And just thinking of mm-hmm. your audio, you know, making sure you go over it, making sure it's, it's the best product that it can be and making sure that it's the best experience for those who want to listen to the book. That's so much more important than getting your book out tomorrow, you know? So that's a really good reminder for anyone and any creativity, really this, this day and age of like everything at our fingertips tomorrow (laughs) or, or in five minutes, a lot of times we don't think of all the work that went into it for years and it's better to, to do it right, I would say, and to be really proud of it mm-hmm. than to to just get it out in a hurry and maybe find mm-hmm. mistakes. You know, it would be such a shame to listen to your book and think, oh, I, I don't like it that she said that instead of this and now it's too late to change it. So mm-hmm. definitely for people looking to publish, look into the different smaller presses because that sounds that sounds like a great experience um before we close why don't you tell people where they can find you they can find you in a lot of places and i personally am going to find your meatless meals friday meals (laughs) (laughs) because i need to get back to cooking but um let them know where they can find you and where they can find victoria's war i think the best place to go initially would be my website Mm -hmm. And that's my hub, and it's CatherineAHamilton.com, all one word, that's Catherine with a C, C C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-A, don't forget the A because there are a lot of Catherine Hamiltons (laughs) out there, CatherineAHamilton.com. And Hamilton, H A M I L. We all know how to spell Hamilton. Yeah, they got a musical for you so that we all know how to spell it. (laughs) (laughs) And on my website, that's my hub. That's where everything about me should you should be able to find. You can find links to to purchase Victoria's War. You can find my recipes, all my articles. 
almost every article that I have written, if you go through, even my CV is on there. So you can even see those, the articles that I publish in my field. But you can buy my Kindle book on uh, Victoria's War. You can actually even purchase my collection of poetry from my website. And also, if you'd like to join me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, the links are also there. So you just click those links and and you can join me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I also have LinkedIn and uh, a number of other social medias. Pinterest, you can follow me. I have a lot of my cooking articles and recipes there. But the easiest is KatherineAHamilton.com and then you can access all my social media just right from from my hub there. And And I highly recommend you follow Catherine Hamilton on Instagram because she always has interesting things there. That's where I found her. So (laughs) I always recommend that. But yes, I'll put the links below. I've had such a good time talking to you about how you how you got um, Victoria's War put together in your stories. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Kat. It was really fun. And I look forward to seeing you on Instagram. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.